into it this morning. I actually um, am kind of really have wrestled with this message. It's one reason I'm asking for distractions, kind of to be a little uh, minimal today. Wrestled with this all week long. Um, wrote out my manuscript on Monday. Went home. Hated it. Wanted to restart everything. And I re- read back through it the next day. I, I began to pray over this. This was kind of, how do you end a seven psalm ser- series, right? You, you want something encouraging. You want something impactful. You want something that's uplifting. And felt very much the, like the Spirit was leading me to Second John. I thought, well, okay. And I went through it and studied it and wrote out, like I said, I wrote out the manuscript. And I thought, this is just not... Something's not right, so it's not clicking. Prayed, started to rewrite it, and was just rewrite a to- just do a totally different message entirely, and prayed once more, and felt like the Holy Spirit said, just read through your manuscript one more time. And so I read through it, and I thought, okay, okay, I, I see kind of what God is doing here, but, but I'm going to use my notes very minimally today, I think. I, I just kind of have them as a guide to keep me from rabbit trailing a lot, which I feel like I've already started doing. Uh, but we're reading in Second John. Since I've been your pastor, since I've been preaching in Lisbon, I've pretty much preached almost the whole book of First John at some point or another, little tidbits here and there. We've done Third John, but I've avoided Second John. 2 John is kind of sandwiched in between them. And now we read these books, we read the epistles, and we, we, know, for, we know John's gospel. It was kind of an interesting story. I was doing discipleship with a young man one time, and, and one of the questions we had was, what does John, uh, 1 John 3.16 say about this particular topic? And he began to read to me out of John 3.16, and I said, no, that's, that's not right. It's 1 John. He goes, this is the first John in the Bible. Well, there's, there's more. There's more as we go. And so, uh, you know, we, we look at the themes that John writes in, and the two themes you really see play out are, are this, love and truth. Love and truth are actually the, the core theme of the gospel. That God so loved the world is a true statement. Amen? And the truth is, He, he gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. We believe that. That's truth. And we see these peppered in throughout John's writings. In fact, it's a, he's the one who said, for God so loved the world. He's the one who wrote that down. It's his gospel. And then we come to his epistles, and, and John writes, it's very fascinating, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but he writes to the, it's the church at Ephesus around 90 A.D., late, 89, late 80s, early 90s, before he goes to Patmos. He's writing to these churches, and 1 John is written to an entire city full of churches. 2 John is written specifically to a church. And 3 John is written to somebody in the church. You see how he, he, he microscopes in as he's writing these things. And 1 John, he's all about love and the truth of love. And that we circle around the truth of who Christ is. And, and he emphasizes, he says things like, we love because God first loved us. And, and this is, and we're going to quote a bunch of verses out of 1 John this morning. But he, he circles around this topic of love. But he also talks about truth. 1 John 4 1 begins with a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, guys, you might want to try this type of verse. It's a command test the spirits. We have to use discernment, we have to use discretion, things like that. He's very 
much, he finds that to be important because we're about truth just as much as we're about love. And if we don't care about truth, we really don't care about love. And if we don't care about love, then we really don't care about truth. They have to go hand in hand in the Christian life. And I'll get into that more as we go. Pilate famously said to Jesus right before he sentenced him, he says, what is truth? It wasn't that long before Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, right? We remember that story? It said that truth and time will always win. And I believe that too. I think that truth and time will win out. But also truth and love. And truth and love are the core message of the gospel. And we're going to go through the entire book of 2 John today. Some of you are like, whoa, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot. It's only 13 verses, okay? It's a very short book. But we're going to read it together beginning in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love to love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we receive commandment from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. See to yourselves that you do not lose what we accomplish, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far does not abide in the teaching of Christ. He does not have God. The one who abides in the, in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. For the Christian, did you notice in the first few verses, the first three verses, four times, he says what word? Truth. Truth. Truth and love must go hand in hand for the believer. Warren Worsby famously said this, Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. As Christians, we are to be about truth and love. It is central to our very beliefs. So if you're taking notes this morning, you may want to write this down. We must live, love, and learn in truth. We must live, love, and learn in truth. That's, that's Second John in a nutshell, right there. That's all he's really telling us. That truth is to be core as to who we are, and love is to be the core of who we are. The Christian must live, love, and learn in truth. And the first point is to live in the truth. We read verses 1 and 2 once again. 
the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. You notice he begins this. He's not just saying I'm an elder. He says he's the elder. It's because at this point, John is the last remaining apostle. Everybody else has been dead. They've been martyred. He's likely suffered some persecution at this point himself, though it's not in the, in the New Testament we read about it so much, but church tradition tells us that he had. And he says he's the elder. We think of him as the apostle. We think of him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he tells, he tells them, I'm the elder. I'm the one watching over you. This is interesting because this kind of gives us, John's in a way, he's kind of pulling back the curtain as to church leadership of his day. We, like I said, we think of him as a disciple, but he's calling himself an elder. Now, when we think of elder, many times people will say, well, the same thing as an overseer. It's really not. The, the overseer is more like the bishop, in a sense. He's the one watching over many churches, just one. Paul tells Titus that the reason he left him as Crete was to appoint elders in every city. Elders who were, well, I'm sorry, I said uh, elder was, okay, forget that. Elders were like bishops. They were watching over the whole city. They were watching over the whole section. He tells Timothy, Timothy himself was the bishop or the elder over Ephesus, and he was to appoint, to appoint overseers over the individual churches. In a sense, like today, we would say, I'm the overseer or the pastor. Those are synonymous over the Lisbon church, but I have an elder or a presbyteros is the Greek word that John uses here. We call it a presbyter in the assemblies of God, and he's over the whole section. And you guys know Kevin Zahn, he's my presbyter. So we kind of have that same structure. We don't use terms like bishop because that's a little uh, Spanish inquisition-y, and we don't like those words. Some of you got that joke. That's okay. We don't really use those terms. Okay. So how do we know this is John, right? He doesn't give his name. He says he's the elder. How do we understand this is the apostle John whom Jesus loved who reclined against him at the table and, and so on and so forth? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all written around the same time. They were all bunched together. They were probably packaged together, three different scrolls intended for three different audiences in the same city. Like I said, 1 John was, was likely sent for the entire city-wide churches, for the whole section, we might say today. And the second John is written to a whole church. He says the elect lady, that is not to a specific woman, that is to the bride of Christ, to the specific church and her children. That would be her church members, okay? Church membership, it was, was still in its infancy at that time. They didn't have the certificates printed yet, but I promise you that we're going to get to that. We're going to see that unfold in our text. And then he writes the third John. Third John is even more specific. It's written to a man named Gaius to deal with this guy named Diotrephes. Diotrephes was one of those guys who likes to cause division and problems within the church. He, was, he, he says he loves to be first. Diotrephes didn't want to pastor the local church, but he wanted to tell everybody else how to run the business, right? He was the one who would run people out of town. In fact, John says that when they would send these preachers to talk and teach in Ephesus, Diotrephes, if somebody was nice to them or hospitable to them, Diotrephes didn't just kick out the preacher, he kicked out the people within the church. So he's a problem. And so John writes 3 John to deal with that. And there's all these 
these things going on in the epistles. We call these the Johannine or Johannine texts. In fact, there's words, there's very similar, uh, similarities between John's gospel, these epistles, and the book of Revelation, which we also know John wrote. There are writing style similarities that tell us all of these are written by the same guy. And the only one who tells us exactly who wrote it is the book of Revelation. And so we piece this together now, and we can look back, but church tradition tells us these were all written together. Now, 2 John tells us why he's writing to us. He says, For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, specifically, the truth he's writing for, he's writing to kind of flesh out what, what he was talking about back in 1 John, just a little bit more specifically. He's talking about this, this teaching that had crept into the church. It was called docetism. Docetism was an early heresy that, that had claimed that Jesus didn't come in body form. He didn't come in flesh, and therefore he didn't suffer at the cross, but he came as some kind of spiritual being without a physical body. He was just made to look human. So when he dies on the cross, he didn't really suffer for our sins. That's what docetism would, would tell us. And so he didn't have a body. He didn't feel the pain. And John says, that's, that's nonsense. I was there. I leaned against his body at the Last Supper. I watched him be pierced through the side with a spear. I watched him drive nails into his hands and feet. It's ridiculous. Now you might think, well, how does that come into the church? How do they... Why would they humor that? Why would they even... How, how does that, that boggles the mind? If they're going to believe the apostles and those who are eyewitnesses, why on earth would they believe somebody who comes along and says something so heinous, like Jesus was a ghost? Well, it comes out of this thing called Gnosticism. The Greek word gnosto means to know. And the Gnostics, just like some people today believed they had some kind of secret, special revelation, special knowledge that didn't align with the scriptures. Didn't align with the prophets and the apostles' writings. And so they believed they had this secret knowledge. There are many of those things still around today. How many of you have ever heard of the Enneagram? The Enneagram comes from the Gnostics. And the idea behind it is that we reveal the God within us. Because it comes from a panentheist named Richard Rohr, who studied the Gnostics and puts this all into practice in this personality test. And it's really not. It's Gnostic teaching. It's, a, it's witchcraft, really, by the time you boiled it down. The same thing can be given to you by an ast astrological chart. It's the same type of stuff. There are some churches who practice things, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, that are Gnostic beliefs. This idea that we can speak things into existence, that we can manifest things, that's from the Gnostics. That's where it all comes. And we, so we see even their influence today. So how dare we sit and say, well, Second John, these Docetists, these, they must have been fools. No, we're still being fooled. There's still Christians being deceived. There's still Christians being bamboozled, you might say. And John says, this is all balderdash. It's all tomfoolery. It's, it's silliness and it's lies. I was there. I, I knew. I, I saw him with my own eyes. In fact, he says in the first John 1 John 1.1, he says, we've seen with our own eyes. We, we beheld, we touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which is Christ Jesus. So John's writing, he's telling the church to specifically how to deal with this stuff. How do we deal with it? In love and in the truth. 
You can't know a deception unless you know the truth. And he's saying that they must live in their truth. Not their truth, not a subjective truth, but the truth. So he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, For I rejoice greatly when, when brothers came... Oh, sorry, I'm looking at Third John. Whoa. <laughs> he says, Grace, mercy... I did that yesterday, too. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace... They are with us. They come from the Father. They come from the Son. But they come in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace are only found in His truth and in His love. It's the only real place you're going to find real grace is in the truth of, the, truth of the cross. The only place you're going to find real mercy is in the truth of the cross. And the only place you're going to get real peace is in the shadow of the cross. God does not deceive. God does not lie. Numbers 23 tells us, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not establish it? Establish it? There is so much peace within that rhetorical question. God is faithful. God is true. And if God loves us and God is who he says he is, we can have peace in that. In that statement. And because God is true, and because God is holy, and because God has declared himself to be loving, we have his grace, we have his mercy. You see how it's all connected, it's all intertwined. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. This, this ultimately is all going to culminate within the Son, within Christ Jesus, who's an atonement for our sin, when the grace and the mercy of God meet at the cross, when, they, when the Father's righteousness and His judgment collide upon Christ as He gives Himself up for us. This is a great Christmas sermon, Pastor Jeff. It would have been better around Easter, right? But it, it's, it's a true fact. And it's the most beautiful truth because this is why Christmas happened. That this might happen too. That this might be fulfilled. The most beautiful act of love out of all loves. The most beautiful act of truth out of all truths. That God so loved, I already quoted it, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then we go on to verse 4, and it says, and this is, this is awesome, I love this verse. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as I receive commandment from the Father. What John is basically saying here is, I accidentally ran into some of your church members. And some pastors, when they would hear this, they would probably go, Oh yeah? How'd that go? Because you know why? Everyone sitting in a chair this morning, you are the best billboard in our community for this church. You are the best investment this church makes in outreach, in advertising, in how you act and conduct yourselves. You can also become the very worst advertisement for the church. That's why we operate in truth and in love. That's why we have to take this teaching and go and live it out in our lives. And John says, hey, I ran into members of your church and they're doing okay. They're doing good. This is something every pastor loves to hear. Believe me. It's such a relief when, when someone calls me up and says, hey, so-and-so was, was over here from your church and they were talking to me and, 
man, I got to tell you, they really know their stuff. And they were saying this and they were saying that. It's like, man, that, praise God. Praise God, because that's a testimony of what we're doing here. Amen? That's a good thing. And John says they're walking in truth. They're, they're living in truth, just, to John, just as John had commanded them. And he says this, is, he says, from the Father. Well, John didn't get this from the Father, did he? We, he, he spent all his time with Jesus. What we know, what we know, because John wrote this out for us in his gospel, is that Jesus received it from the Father. And so hearing it from Jesus was the same as receiving it from the Father. Jesus says in John's gospel, I and the Father are one. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. John sees these people from their church and they are living in truth and they're living out what they've been taught and they're carrying on in good teaching and good doctrine and sound faith. They're walking in truth. They're walking in love. They're living in truth and in love. And so he writes the church and he says, what he's saying here is, good job. This is a big deal to the early church, by the way, because I imagine they got a lot more admonishments than they did encouragements. In fact, the Greek word John uses here, when he says, when he goes to say, I found them, or I was, I was, I was extremely glad, his, his, his Greek here says, he was as glad or as happy as a human could possibly be to find, and you guys know this word in Greek, Eureka! He says, that, you know what Eureka means? I discovered something amazing on accident. That's literally what it means. I wasn't looking for them, but I found, I ran into some members of your church, and they were, they were doing so good. John's excited, and he's happy, and this is going to make the church happy. But he's got this other thing. He says, he says don't, just, don't just live in that truth. We've got to love in that truth. And so we go to verse 5, and he says, and this is the second point, love and truth. He says, now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, he's shifting gears here. In fact, verse 5 and verse 6 are the core verses of this entire letter. But he's shifting gears. He says, I ask you, lady, and we would read this to understand, I'm going to ask you, church. I'm going to say something to you, church. I'm not writing something new to you here, but this is something we've said from the very beginning. And he's saying, I ask that we love one another. John's gospel is filled with this command, by the way. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is my commandment, John 15, 12, that you love one another just as I have loved you, John 15, 17. This command, I get this I command you, that you love one another. And when John goes to write his first epistle, he starts out, he says, in chapter 3, he says, For this is the message which you've heard from the very beginning, that we should love one another. But something in John's interactions with those church members compels him to write this. And we don't know exactly what it was. Maybe the church... Maybe it was just a comment. Maybe it was just something offhand. But the Holy Spirit has moved John to write this very specifically. And so John is saying to them, we have to be reminded of this fact that we should still have love for
for one another. He refers to this new command. He says, on the other hand, I'm writing a new command to you, which is, the true, which is true in him. This is back in 1 John. He says, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, what's this new command that he gave them in 1 John? He says, but the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, the new command isn't just you have to love one another. The new command is don't hate. You cannot hate. Because if we have hate, John's saying we cannot love. He's not really even giving them a new commandment. He's just wording it a little bit different, isn't he? We would think that. But how many of you think, or how many of you have heard a Christian say, man, I hate that guy. But you're a Christian. You're supposed to love everybody. Oh, I do. I love him too, but I also hate that guy. I've heard people say that. I've got friends in the world. I've got friends in the church. And, and all of us are capable of hate. So John's saying, no, you're to love and you're not to hate anybody. You're not to hate at all. Love is, is the core command for the follower of Christ. But so is truth. It's central that we love one another in truth and that we love one another to truth. To love as Christ loved. Even to the point we're willing to risk our lives, to risk everything, to lay down our lives on behalf of one another. There's no love greater. Jesus himself says this. And if we're, and you may want to write this down, if we are to love in truth, then we ought to know the truth of that kind of love. If we're to love in truth, then we ought to know the truth of that kind of love. The life of a Christian is a sacrificial love, a love that says, I want truth in your life more than I want you to suffer deceit. I want truth in your life more than I want you to like me. I love you enough and I, I want truth in your life enough that I'm going to love you in spite of the fact that it makes you mad at me. As your pastor, I love you more than I love being right, but I still love you enough to bring you the truth. We all must love truth. And the truth is not a subjective thing. Especially not when it comes to the gospel. Not when it comes to the word of God. Not when it comes to the Son. Not when it comes to the Spirit. Not when it comes to the Father. And so on and so forth. Now Christians may disagree about some secondary issues. Christians may disagree about some tertiary issues. Some third degree issues. But truth eventually will come out. Someone once asked John Calvin. They said, when you get to heaven... How much of your theology do you think is right? Do you think God's going to say you got right? And John Calvin thought for a moment. He said, well, probably about 80%. That's encouraging for one of the guys who laid the foundations for the modern church, right? Probably about 80%, they said. Well, why don't you just fix it now? If you know it's 80%. He said, if I, fi if I knew what it was, I'd fix it. We're not always going to get everything 100%. We won't know until we get there. Now here's the thing, when you get to heaven, there's no trophy that says, congratulations, you've got the most right theology, right? Or you argued the best on the internet. And just because you argue on the internet doesn't make you an apologist. I've tried to tell some of my friends that. You get to heaven, there's no trophy that says you have the greatest theology, but there will be times people go to heaven and hear, we've ran out of millstones, you're going to have to wait. 
truth is not subjective. We either get it right or we get it wrong, but the core message of the gospel, the truth of our doctrines and so on, we have to be in agreement with those things or we become a church divided. And like we saw last week, a church divided will not stand. So we love in truth as we love the truth itself. This is, this is John's next point, verse 6. He says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the very beginning, that you should walk in it. This is another thing you may want to write down, or in your, if you're taking the notes, you may want to circle this. Love of Christ is always tied to obedience to Christ. You cannot say, I love Jesus, and then do nothing he says. And back in 1 John, he says this, By this we know the love, the children, uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. According to John, love is not emotional, love is an expectation. Love is not just a personal attraction. Love is not just a preference. It is rooted in truth and carried out in obedience to that truth. When John writes, just as you've heard from the beginning, the word he uses there, it's only one word in English, have heard, though, uh, but in, uh, sorry, it's two words in English, but it's one word in Greek, ekousate, and it means they listened and obeyed. It's not just hearing it in one ear and out the other. It's listening and doing Doing the obedience is a, is a natural reaction to what we have heard and understood. Those who are obedient to God's commands are obedient to his truth. And by doing so, by being so, they prove they are obedient, or they, that they love his truth. If we find ourselves deviating from his commands and we find ourselves in disobedience, it's because in that moment we are choosing to love something else, something less than the one we say we love. And we struggle with this throughout the Christian life, by the way. It's not something that's just going to be pop one day, it's all over, and you have no more sin. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. He says, the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells within me. When sin wins within us, it's only because our love for the truth has failed within us. You follow me this morning? I haven't heard an amen, so I'm wondering if you're sleeping. And I hear some laughter. Okay. But John stresses this. He stresses that we have to be vigilant in the truth. And we have to be vigilant in love. Because there are those who want to derail the church. There are those who want to harm believers and, and have them chase after them. Verse 7, he says this. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Notice right here, right out of the gate, John says this word. He says, there are many deceivers. The Greek word there is poloi. What that means is there's not an infinite amount, but there's an amount I can't count. It's an innumerable amount. And the message he's sending here is there are more of them than there are of us. There are more of them than there are of me. That's what he's saying here. There will always be more deceivers, more false teachers, more of those who try to twist the truth, who try to turn the flock, than those who preach the truth. They come in unnoticed. Jude warns us of this. He says they, they rise up from within the church itself. In fact, I heard a preacher this past week. He said that scripture is very clear 
If you want to know where the deceivers are going to come from, it's from within the church. It's always from within the church. It's somebody who in the moment their flesh wants something, their mind wants something, and they don't like what Scripture says, they don't like what they're being taught, and so they want to deviate and take everybody with them. It's like these deconstruction guys that say, well, I don't believe in Christ anymore, but come follow me on this journey. Why would we follow you? Right? These guys who say, well, I was a Christian once, I'm not anymore. Well, I only cared about your message because you were taking me closer to Christ. Now you want to lead me away? That's what these people do. Peter makes this clear too. He says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Paul also tells the church this. He warns them. And if you think John is mean, by the way, and how what he says as we go forward, just remember Paul used a word, a specific Greek word for them, anathema, which means condemned to eternal punishment. And I'm cleaning up the language this morning. He was very firm on that. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He called them savage wolves. John's going to call them in our text, he's going to call them the Antichrist. They're not good for the church. So this is why we live in the truth. This is why we love in the church. And it's more important, even so, that we learn in the truth so we recognize deception when it comes up. And John is giving, here he's giving limits to the Christian love. We're not to love deception. We're not to allow that in the church. Paul is even harsher. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And that's not just a command for the pastor. That's not a command for the board. That's for every single Christian. Do not have anything to do with them, but expose them where you see them, where you hear them. Don't tolerate it. Expose it. Bring it to light. And that's not to say John's going easy on them or, or, or that, that we should go easy on them or anything like that. But if we're living in truth, there has to be a line that is drawn with those who do not do those things. We cannot... This is... This is we, we cannot say we love truth and humor deception. Look at how John finishes this. We learn in truth. Verse 8. See to yourselves that you do not lose what we accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. When John says this, he says, see to yourselves. He's actually echoing the words of Christ. He's echoing something Jesus said. He said, see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts. And you'll be beaten in the synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. That's Mark 13, 9. The idea is we have to be self-aware, that we have to watch out for ourselves. And by ourselves, he's not saying, like Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. He's not saying, watch your own back. He's saying, watch out for your brother and your sister in Christ. When they start to derail, bring them back. Bring them back to the truth. Teach them in truth. Love them in truth so that they might live in truth. When Jesus said it, when he said uh, to, to see to yourselves, when he was talking about it, he was speaking of persecution, physical suffering, even death. When John is saying this, when he's echoing that here, he's referring to spiritual deception, spiritual suffering, and even spiritual death. He's saying they might backslide or even completely reject the truth of the gospel. The apostles labored and worked hard to teach and instill in others a faith in Christ that was, that was genuine, that was solid. The fact that Christ came and in the flesh and died for our sins and, and for those who would believe in him. Through, through him, all believers receive a full reward and so on and so forth. 
Paul tells the Philippian church, hold fast to the word of life. So that in that day of Christ, he and, and the other apostles would have a reason to boast because they had labored or suffered not in vain. That's Paul's concern over the, over the churches that he ministered to. In fact, in the Galatian churches, they'd gone so far, by the time you get to Galatians 4, he says, I'm kind of worried I might have wasted my time with you guys. Because they liked the deception more than they liked the truth. We have to see to ourselves. Not just watch our own back, but watch out for one another. It's kind of like, imagine a bodybuilder. Uh, whoa, he's talking, he's changing gears a lot here, right? Okay. Imagine a bodybuilder. He goes to the gym every day. He lifts the heaviest weights. He does the most reps. He, he's pushing himself to the physical limit he possibly can. But if you know anything about bodybuilding, it's not the work you do in the gym. It's what you do in the kitchen that matters. My wife likes to say, abs are made in the kitchen. I think she's hinting, right? That's where you're going to get the, the, the best fuel and the best nutrition for your body as you work out. Now imagine this bodybuilder puts himself through this day in and day out. He eats chicken, he eats beef, he eats uh, the, the cleanest, healthiest vegetables and all that. But one day he goes to the gym, and as he's walking in, he smells something. <laughs> oh, it smells so good. There's a McDonald's in the gym. There's free Big Macs and large fries. And they got Diet Coke. And so this bodybuilder, he's, you know, he walks over. I don't know if I can have that. I don't know if I should be eating that. And the guy looks at him and says, bro, because that's how you talk in the gym. Bro, we're in a gym. You think we're going to give you unhealthy Big Macs? You think we're going to give you unhealthy French fries? It's called Diet Coke, bro. You drink it whenever you're on a diet, bro. And so the guy says, well, sign me up. It smells good. And he begins to eat. And he says the next morning, he doesn't feel so good after his workout. So he says, I'll go in in the morning and I won't have that stuff. And he goes in and he's, oh, it's an Egg McMuffin and hash browns. And they've got orange juice. Orange juice is healthy. It comes from fruit. I'll have some of that. And the next day, he, he, he eats before he goes because he knows that something's up, but he, he says, man, it just tastes so good. And he walks in, he's tired, it's in the evening, and he smells this, it's a McCafe coffee. They got everything. So he goes and he gets that coffee. And before long, what happens? His workout starts suffering, doesn't it? He doesn't have the energy he used to have. He's not burning the fat that he used to burn, right? And he keeps going. And before long, He's not even going to the gym. He's just going straight to McDonald's. You see, that's a great metaphor because I made it up. I think it was a great metaphor. But that's what happens in the church all the time. It smells good. It sounds good. It looks good. And it's even packaged in a Jesus-colored wrapper, whatever that means. They use Bible words. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it on my insides. And everything else begins to unravel. Now, church, to use a biblical analogy here, a biblical illustration, we need more men like Phineas. We need more women who are going to be like Phineas. Now, Phineas is not a real popular guy in Scripture, but he's from the Old Testament. When Israel was going through the wilderness, they begin to marry these Moabite women. This was a plan set up by uh, the guy Balaam, who had the talking donkey. Everybody remembers that story. They don't know, they don't know Phineas. They begin to marry 
the Moabite women. Marriage isn't a bad thing. God created marriage, right? Hmm. McDonald's in the gym. And the Bible tells us before long they're sacrificing to Baal. Before long they're sacrificing to other gods. And so Moses, he gets all the people. This is in Numbers 25, if you want to research this later. He gathers up all the leaders of Israel and he says, you know what, I want you to go. Everybody who has joined themselves to Baal, put them to death. We're going to cleanse the camp. And so they do. And the camp begins to weep. The people are crying. And wouldn't you know, one more guy goes, I'll show you. And he goes and he grabs a Moabite woman and they go running through the camp together. And Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, he goes and he grabs a spear. Long story short, he makes a pincushion out of them. He puts an end to it. But now fast forward later, God's rewarded Phineas for his passion for the truth. He says, for Phineas' zealousness, he rewards him. Phineas is Aaron's grandson, by the way. I think he learned grandpa's mistake, making the, altar, making the, the golden calf. He probably learned from that. And years later, Joshua 22, Moses is dead. Joshua's running things. They're settling into the, camp. They're settling into the promised land. And the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they go off and they build this big, beautiful altar. And the rumors begin to circulate, as they often do, right? And it gets back to Joshua. They've created another altar. They're worshiping false gods. They're doing something wrong. Now Joshua in that moment could have went himself. Joshua was a commander. Joshua was still a brilliant military mind at this point in his life. He could have went and he could have just wiped them out. But he doesn't do it. Because that would be wrong too. He could have sent his buddy Caleb, his old spy buddy from way back in the day. It wasn't that long ago. Caleb said, I, I might be 85 years old, but I feel as good as I did the day we set out. I, and he, he's actually off fighting giants in Bethlehem, if you read Joshua 14. Now Joshua says to Phineas, he says, hey Phineas, grab your spear. I got a job for you. And Phineas goes out and with discernment, goes to the camp and he interviews the people and he sees what's going on and they say, you look, we set this up because we don't want to stray. We set this up because we want to be faithful for generations forward. And I think Phineas puts his spear down and goes home. He says, Joshua, I got a good report. But we need men and women who have discernment of when to use the spear and when not to. Or all we've fought for, all we've learned, all we've worked for, begins to go down the drain of deception. And John says it can go too far. Look at what he says, verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Before long, in a deception, before long, we're, we're not abiding in the teachings of Christ anymore. And if we, if we do that, we can't say we love God. To always seek after new things, to always seek after new truths, to try and be progressive, it's not always a good thing. I'm all for mining the scriptures to find out what they say, and it might be new to me, but if we're trying to find new truths, chances are it's new because it's wrong. It's new because it's heresy. It's not often a good thing. And if we, we do not learn the truth of scripture, if we don't listen to scripture, if we become deceived, sooner or later, it's not the teachings of Jesus we care about. It's not the gym and the healthy food we want. It's the deception. 
We cross over into something else entirely. We're no longer even going to the gym. We're going to the McDonald's. A failure to be faithful to the sound doctrines we know and we trust exposes what our true passions were always after. You guys have heard me say before, many people are after a plus ministry. They want Jesus plus something else. They want scripture plus something else. They want the Holy Spirit plus something else. That is a deception. This is a central theme to John's epistles. He says in 1 John 2, 23, Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. We cannot abide in Christ if we'd rather abide in a deception. And that word, abide, by the way, menon, it means to stay within it. To take up residence, to remain in it. In other words, to be unrepentant in it. The deception is easy because it often tastes sweet. But it's not water from the river of life. It's antifreeze. It's Jonestown Kool-Aid. And it'll spiritually end us if we do not learn in truth. I'm going to finish with these last few verses. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. This is where John is saying there's a line. This is where he's saying people can go too far. He says, don't even greet them. If they can't give you the gospel, if it's got to be the gospel plus something else, if it's got to be the word of God plus something else, if it's got to be worship plus something else, he's saying literally in the Greek, don't even say hi to them. Don't even smile in their direction. Because when you're doing that, you're humoring it. And whenever you're humoring it, you're inviting it. And whenever you're inviting it, not long, you're participating in it. Paul says it like this to the Romans. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own stomach and of their smooth and flattering speech. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. In other words, mark and avoid them. Stay away from them. In our text, John is saying, Don't even wish them well. Don't smile at them. You're not happy to see them. They bring only death to the church. And it may not get you, but it could get somebody else. It could lead someone else astray. Again, the words of Paul, don't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. Expose them. Believers should only be about the truth, learning the truth, living the truth, and loving the truth. You understand the first century they would have these preachers who would go from town to town and they relied on the, the local church to provide hospitality, to provide food and lodging and these things. And John's saying, if these people come, if they're doing this, these docetists, these Gnostics, whatever the case is, don't greet them. Don't even act like you want them to come over to your house. The flip side happens in 3 John. Because good preachers are coming, he's sending them a good message, he's sending them the truth, he's sending preachers that could be relied on, and Diotrephes is saying, no, that don't belong here. That's a problem. That's why we need the Phineas spear. That's why we need discernment. That's why we need to know the truth, because we don't want to give them a platform for deception, and we want people who do bring truth to come in and be welcomed. Amen? Once you realize what they are, tell them to kick rocks. That's what he's saying in, in 2023 language. They're not to be welcomed. 
Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if there's no discipline for an immoral person, a deceiver, a false teacher, if he remains unrepentant, that deceit and that immorality which eventually comes from it spreads in the whole body. So why scripture study is so important. In the new year, we're starting a new series on Wednesday nights. And we're going to basically just be going through basic Christian doctrines, reinforcing what we know is the truth. That's our foundations class. You might have saw the slide for it. It's important that the church know what that is, know what it looks like, and be able to explain it to others. And so it's going to be basically a systematic theology class for our church. And I really would encourage you to come check it out. Come be here on Wednesdays after, after the 10th. And church, de deceit happens to all of us. I'm not above it. One day I was watching, I like to, like I've said this in recent sermons, I like to have background noise while I'm, while I'm doing my sermon prep or my devotionals. It helps me focus. And this preacher came up and, on YouTube I'd never heard of. I thought, okay, I'll check him out. And he begins talking, he's telling this sermon and some of the things he said, I was like, hey, this is good stuff. I like, I like the cut of his jib, as a friend of mine used to say. I like that. That's good. It makes sense. And here's the thing with these, with these docetists, as well as with the false teachers today, they're broken clocks. They're right twice a day. I just happened to catch 11.45 that day when he was right. Because I go to his Facebook page, and there's some things on there, and I go, hmm... I don't know if I like this guy as much. And then I go to his YouTube page and I find, oh, okay. He's telling me that there is a thumb-sucking demon, a bedwetting demon, and all these other things. And I'm going, mm-mm. And then he tells me in another video that because I have tattoos, demons can enter the body through tattoos. And you know how he says he knows this? Because demons have told him. Oh, so he's got credible sources, right? His name is Vlad Savchuk. Horrible guy. Got me, though. Almost had me, Vlad. Good job. If I didn't know the truth, I'd have been suckered in by the guy. We have to learn in truth, church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, and we're going to close with the last two verses, verses 12 and 13. He says, Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now notice he says they greet you. In other words, we know you're doing right. So we want to greet you. John felt this message was so important, it was worth more than just a letter. He wanted to go there and see it through himself. Like Phineas, John was going to do what it took to help an ailing church. A church that was under attack. That's the same way we must look out for one another. We have to have one another's back. Looking over our own lives. Open to the possibility that even, even we might stray. We might, we might be deceived and be ready and willing to hear it when someone's calling us back to the narrow path. The truth is pride won't hear such things. Selfishness won't submit to such things. Our flesh wants to have experiences, wants to have feelings, but our soul truly craves truth. And our hearts need love. So as we close today, I'm going to challenge you to make this personal. And I would ask as you worship today, pray, Lord, am I, am I living in truth? Am I loving in truth? Am I seeking to learn in truth? Even though it might be an uncomfortable thing. 
Ask the Holy Spirit to convict us where he has to and, and guide us where we've been unable to see clearly. And ask that we, we allow Scripture to be our guide, our light to our path. And as we worship, we'll, we'll close as well. Will you stand as we do so?